You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech, the um, show where we mine for nuggets of gold among the rubble of the collision of media, tech, and entertainment. I'm your host, David Bloom. Delighted to be back with you. This is uh, my first podcast in a little while. I apologize for that. It's been a little hectic in a mostly good way here in the pandemic. But I spent some time, a lot of time actually, creating what I call my uh, quarterly report card on the streaming services. In this episode, I'll go through those grades and what I was thinking and what I handed out for the various services now that just about all of them with one notable exception. Uh, Just about all of them are out and and in the market, all the major ones now that we've been waiting for, in some cases for months. And uh, some have done really well and some have done less so, but we're halfway through the year, four months plus into the pandemic lockdown, which transformed the streaming business and helped really supercharge it. And also showed, I think, some of the uh, some of the holes in some of the business models and really made those services um, have to step up and figure out what their next step will be. Uh, so to begin with, let's start with uh, the big one, Netflix. They did great. Uh, others less so. But if any streaming service won, and I hate to use that term, the first months of the quarantine, it was Netflix. They saw their global audience swell by 10% or 16 million subscribers in the first quarter, and then another 10 million subscribers in the second quarter. 26 million subs. Last year, they only added 28 million for the entire year, and they added 26 million. It was kind of uh, ironic that uh, they announced that and and said, you know, we don't think we're going to add a whole lot more because we've added so many on the front end. We've sort of front-loaded this process, and their their stock, which had been flying pretty high, plunged 50 Dollars in uh, after-hours trading as soon as they made that announcement, I guess last week now. Um, they've since recovered substantial parts of that uh, that uh, share price collapse, and they're, they're back over $500 a share. So no one's worried about Reed Hastings' next meal. But that being said, forget share prices, forget some of that stuff for now. They have offered a dizzyingly broad mix of shows in this last quarter, including Inflection, a big hit, Outer Banks, great for the uh, teens and tweens, uh, All for Love, Southern Survival, a reality show, The Order, Space Force with Steve Carroll, 365 Days, a, uh, by all accounts, terrible uh, knockoff of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey from Poland, but uh, worked for somebody because it was a hit, and it was definitely a meme. Uh, Warrior Nun, even a rebooted Unsolved Mysteries have proven to be big hits. The company also had a lot to contribute to the wake. Uh, the company also had a lot to contribute in the wake of protests for racial justice fueled by Black Lives Matter and the deaths of George Floyd and way too many other unarmed uh, people of color in recent times and really forever, it feels like. Uh, Netflix committed to deposit $100 million in banks serving communities of color. I think that's a really pragmatic approach that could make a difference in underserved neighborhoods in terms of providing capital for those banks to help invest in those communities and help them grow in a way that makes sense. It's a good use of corporate dollars in a, a really substantive way. And I give Netflix credit for 
uh, taking that ball and running with it. CEO Reed Hastings and his wife also donated $140 million, speaking of uh, pragmatic and useful investments, uh, $140 million to the United Negro College Fund and two historically black colleges in Atlanta, Spelman and Morehouse. They also made a superstar hire, in my opinion, with new Chief Marketing Officer Bozema St. John of Ghanaian descent. St. John made a splash initially at Pepsi's music unit, then she was at Beats when it was bought by Apple, and uh, became a bit of a, a bit of a crossover when she showed up at one of the uh, big Apple uh, events and got everybody rocking. She's a she's a uh, mag, uh, charismatic personality, to put it mildly. Later, she was brought in as CMO to deal with some of the messes at Uber and at Hollywood Holding Company Endeavor. Um, she's made them better, but there are things you can only do so much about. Um, by comparison, Netflix has no mess to clean up, but it is now focused on courting a much more global audience than it was a couple of years ago with an equally diverse array of programming. St. John, who is known for advertising that's very emotional, music-connected, very uh, much more uh, about community and connection and all that, um, probably will shift that $2 billion marketing budget that, that Netflix has in even more interesting ways, perhaps uh, away from the monthly onslaught of new releases and perhaps more toward building the overall Netflix brand as the company faces more competition from big media companies trying to figure out this space. Uh, it is important to note that while many people are buying additional streaming channels. Very few people are dropping Netflix. Some, uh, and the company itself, initiated a pro-consumer plan. If you hadn't logged on in the last couple of years, they basically shut down your account and stopped billing you. And I think that's an honorable thing to do and probably will win them uh, some fans in the long run. Um, But that monthly onslaught of new releases I talked about has proved to be a real difference maker as the quarantine and lockdown have continued to grind on. Production halts shut down most of Hollywood. It's really hamstrung the launches or expansions of several of the newcomers at a crucial time. Everybody's got time to watch their shows, and they don't have much on the plate. Um, Netflix, however, has a pipeline that is uh, years long because they release all their shows at once, and they have lots of stuff. They say they'll be in good shape through at least the end of the year. They'll see a somewhat lighter release schedule in 2021's first half, but even there, they said, by the time the year's over, they anticipate being able to um, actually release more shows total than in 2020. As it is, they're putting out 50 or 60 shows a month. That is overwhelming compared to the paucity of new releases on Apple TV Plus or Disney Plus, never mind HBO Max or Peacock, which both launched in this last quarter or so. Um, It's a really interesting uh, beast to watch. They did about everything right, and because of that, I gave them an A. Everyone else is fighting for second place. Disney Plus uh, was just about the only part of Disney, still doing well amid the pandemic. Though I have to say, <laughs> I am a, I'm agog that people are still going to Disney World in the middle of the huge spike in cases of COVID-19 in Florida. But uh, be that as it may, they opened it and already had to start making changes. What was left of all of Disney's remarkably diverse uh, business is pretty beat up. But what was left after live sports went away, after uh, parks went away, after cruise lines went away, after resorts went away, was Disney+. Plus. 
and Hulu. Um, they expanded into new territories. Their signups soared past 50 million. They became a go-to source of on-demand programming for millions of suddenly homebound children. That worked really well, but I have to say, um, I certainly felt uh, discernible grumbles over by the time we got to month three because they didn't have a whole lot of stuff for grown-ups. If you wanted to watch, you know, the Marvel the Marvel shows again or dig up one of the great. Um, uh, Pixar movies, fantastic. But if you were not in those sort of somewhat specialized corners in the, the watch it over and over space, there wasn't that much to watch that wasn't about Disney talking about how great it is to be Disney. They did quiet the grumble some for at least a couple of hours with a very canny move. They took Hamilton out of theaters, the movie version of the hit Broadway, actually mega hit, Broadway show, and they moved it to July 4th weekend. And a week or two before they did that, they stopped giving out free one-week trials. So people had to buy something to watch the show. It paid off big. Downloads of the Disney Plus app jumped 72% over that weekend. And we continue to hear of, uh, according to App Annie, that those uh, downloads are continuing as people go to watch probably Hamilton and a few other things. The Hamilton maneuvers still don't fix the bigger challenge. Disney's, Disney Plus's strength is also its limiter. If you're not into superheroes or kids programming or just American-only, scrub-clean, mainstream entertainment, Disney doesn't have much to offer. It could effectively be the world's largest niche channel. Netflix with a library chock full of all kinds of shows made all over the planet is still better positioned for global success, even as Disney Plus continues to expand overseas. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the Disney Plus programming. They just uh, yesterday, as part of San Diego Comic-Con, announced a bunch of changes to their slates. They pushed back the Avatar sequels. They pushed back uh, much of the Star Wars uh, plans that they have. Uh, some other, they took Mulan, which has been delayed and delayed and delayed in a theatrical release. They took it off the schedule altogether, which makes one think that it may be a good candidate, like uh, Hamilton, to be released in uh, Disney Plus in a way to help gen up attention for the, um, the the app. If so, it represents a potential opportunity to make Disney Plus more than just the place for somewhat older stuff, plus the Mandalorian and some Star Wars series and some Marvel series. We'll see how that plays out. There's been a lot of speculation that they could up the price and start doing some of their higher level shows through there, as well as perhaps a premium VOD release. It's a conversation going on throughout uh, Hollywood. Um, Disney is, of course, better positioned than anybody else in Hollywood, never mind the big tech players in the entertainment space, but certainly better position anybody in Hollywood to take advantage of this. So we'll see what they end up doing. Apple TV Plus, Apple's entry in the streaming wars, had a less than stellar start to my mind, at least compared to Disney Plus, which launched only two weeks later in rocket ship style. Regardless, Ampere Analysis estimated that TV Plus ended 2019 with nearly 34 million subscribers. Apple itself hasn't really told us what they've done. Um, as a matter of fact, they've been remarkably mum on the uh, concept of the subscriber numbers since that launch, um, which suggests to me that there is uh, not a great story to tell, even though the pandemic provided a unique chance to lock in, lock down consumers. 
But there have been signs in this last quarter of a newly engaged student here. Um, oh, my goodness. I give Disney Plus a grade A- minus for excellent work, though not enough of it was original and arresting. But they are a dutiful student and definitely hitting their marks. In the second quarter, since it started for TV Plus, there have been some signs of a newly engaged Apple. At the Worldwide Developers Conference in June, the kickoff event featured a trailer for the upcoming version of Foundation, which is a series version of Isaac Asimov's beloved science fiction franchise, and which has been in development for something for a very long time, but now finally looks like it might happen. It's quite, the, uh, it's quite an entertaining trailer. I certainly recommend you track it down on TV Plus or Apple TV. That show's arrival is uh, only quoted as 2021, so that's not going to do much for Apple's biggest shortcoming, a thin library of originals-only shows that already has been quickly exhausted. Now, that being said, Apple has been taking some steps. Defending Jacob broke out in the spring, and there are significant signs that they're adapting their overall policy of originals only by getting more content of all kinds. Apple bought Greyhound, the Tom Hanks World War II naval drama that uh, debuted early in July from, from Sony for $70 million. They rolled out The Greatness Code, a sports docuseries backed in part by LeBron James, Michael Strahan, and Tom Brady. And Little Voice, a scripted series from J.J. Abrams and Sarah Boreas, uh, all came out in the same weekend. They spent another $120 million at the virtual Cannes film market on an Anton Fuqua Will Smith film project. That's a record for any acquisition pre-festival for any festival. So they spent some serious money on a big, big project that I think is a science fiction project and should be uh, a big swing. Um, they cut a deal with the Maurice Sendak estate for animated programming for based on his beloved child's, children's books, such as Where the Wild Things Are. And they're reportedly acquiring some third-party shows, though we've seen little so far. They're also running... Uh, Apple also has been running... Uh, four-year consideration campaigns uh, for the Emmys, for The Morning Show, Defending Jacob, and other programming. All this makes it feel like Apple's warming up to actually running a subscription video service. Given its $1.6 trillion market capitalization and vast hoard of cash, estimated at well over $100 billion, other students in this class might have reason to worry about the curve if Apple starts applying itself. So the grade for Apple is a C-plus for increasing effort. Amazon Prime Video inexplicably took until the first week of July 2020 to finally begin rolling out two of the most basic user-friendly features one might expect from any modern subscription streaming service. One was the addition of user profiles, so different people in a household can create their own watch lists and histories and have a more personalized experience. On top of that, the other big addition allows different kinds of profiles for children, with additional restrictions on what can be watched, bought, or rented. That's essential, particularly when uh, kids can get in and start buying things that they shouldn't be buying or watching things that they shouldn't be watching. It's a trend. Uh, it's also worth noting that Apple also launched its version of Watch Parties, a trend that is happening more widely, both within specific services like Amazon and with external programs uh, that allow you to watch together. We'll call, we should call these co-watching programs that allow you to together virtually watch a show. 
Uh, I think that it's smart for Amazon to keep people uh, in its uh, backyard as opposed to going outside. But I've talked to people like the the uh, president of uh, Senior Magazine. Uh, I've talked with people like the head of uh, Senior S C E N E R. Uh, who are creating watch party capabilities across multiple services so that everybody can watch, whether it's on Amazon Prime or TV Plus or one of the others. I think less awesome for Amazon was its continuing standoffs with both HBO Max and Peacock. Roku has the same problem, meaning the two services that together reach about two-thirds of U.S. households, some 80 million households, don't have HBO Max, don't have Peacock. I won't spend a lot of time on what's going on here. It feels a lot like the old carriage fights between cable services and channels like Viacom. Um, it's uh, it's going to be an issue. Um, you know, both sides want to uh, have control over the subscription relationships with customers, data on watching, and other issues. And um, both HBO Max and Peacock are holding the line. So Roku and Amazon are are without major new services. I'll blame all the houses involved, but it certainly says a lot about where things are that these guys are trying to hold on to as much data as possible at this moment. But that being said, the continued standoffs for Amazon, as far as I'm concerned, are a fail. Now, that's for Amazon as a whole, not Prime Video, but it's sort of inseparable because Prime Video is part of a broader um, video strategy from Amazon. They've had huge success in the, in the past two years with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Fleabag, but there hasn't been the same kind of breakout original show this year on Amazon Prime. It did just launch new seasons of Hannah and Jack Ryan and still has that half-billion-dollar Lord of the Rings spinoff series coming sometime. There's also a deal it signed with some Westworld creators for a series built around the dystopian game franchise Fallout, which is a deep and clever narrative universe that could be fertile ground for a video series. I look forward to seeing what they do with that. But Amazon's understandably been a distracted student. It's been focused on dominating e-commerce during the pandemic, which has also helped Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos break his own record as the world's wealthiest humanoid. Perhaps Prime Video will get back in the competition for viewer attention online soon, given all the resources Amazon can bring to bear. I will give them extra credit. Production's underway on a 10-part series from Barry Jenkins, the wonderful director, based on Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize-winning Underground Railroad. Whitehead said that on, in an online conversation I heard a couple weeks ago, and good timing to get that thing out. It's going to be, I'm sure, tremendous. Whitehead is an extraordinary writer with extraordinary uh, relevance in this time of protests over racial justice, so I hope that's out sooner than later. Uh, the grade for Amazon Prime is B- minus for turning in late projects and not enough original work. HBO Max. AT&T finally joined the streaming party in Q2, but it was hardly the splashy debut that new Warner Media CEO Jason Kilar would have wanted. The pandemic meant only about half a dozen originals debuted on launch day, including Anna Kendrick's winsome turn in Love Life and the voguing competition show Legendary. 
Fortunately, WarnerMedia has a very deep library, starting with all the available shows from HBO's remarkable collection of Emmy award-winning show series. Key component, HBO continues its run of excellence, picking up 16 nominations, including four for Watchmen from the Television Critics Association Awards a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Watchmen, I strongly recommend. Again, highly relevant uh, to the to the moment in many ways, though somewhat unexpectedly. The challenge going forward is whether HBO can continue making bell cow shows such as Watchmen while also filling out the herd with a lot of other good enough programming to keep up with the Netflixes of the world. HBO Max also features films from the Warner Brothers Vault, beloved animation house studio Ghibli. I took a tour, a fond, nostalgic tour through uh, the great My Neighbor Totoro from uh, Miyazaki Hayao Miyazaki the other day, and it was as lovely and sweet as I remember. If you have children, I require you to show this movie to them. They also have a superb group of classics called from the Criterion Collection. That's a gift, as is the Studio Ghibli and Warner Brothers Vault material for cinephiles of all types. There's plenty of classic TV as well, beginning with Friends, So even without many originals, there's plenty to watch, though at the highest monthly price of any service, basically what you're paying for HBO now with a whole lot more. But there are some unforced errors. Unforced error one, debuting Gone with the Wind just weeks before uh, all the racial justice protests broke out. Warner couldn't have anticipated the protests, but plenty of people have raised concerns for years about Gone with the Wind's antebellum, no, antediluvian depiction of race relations in the South. The company pulled the film for a few weeks to add commentary and perspective about those depictions. Perhaps that could have been done, I don't know, 15 years ago, or I don't know, whenever we get enlightened these days. I don't think it's happening soon enough, but, you know, it's something that certainly could have been done a long time ago. Second unforced error, deep confusion over branding and accessing the service. Where, many consumers wondered, did HBO Max fit in with HBO Go, HBO Now, and, well, HBO, HBO? The company moved to clean up some of that confusion as it sunsets Go and Now, and I think eventually they'll get this figured out as they transition to streaming more fully and away from the cable business that has been their um, their their moneymaker for so long. It's important to remember that HBO is actually the very first cable channel, started in 1972, and now it is it has the opportunity to be a really influential streaming service. There was a third unforced error, again, the continuing disputes with Roku and Amazon about carrying the service. That keeps HBO Max off devices that reach an estimated 80 million households, that doesn't feel like a win for anyone, least of all consumers. Warner Media absolutely should want to keep all its viewing data, subscriber relationships, and advertising possibilities. We are told an ad-supported tier is coming eventually. But the deal with Apple suggests a compromise can happen. For now, HBO Max is turning itself into a niche service given the limited carriage that it has. On the plus side, Richard Tom. Jason Keelar's cohort at both Hulu and Vessel joined in June as CTO, bringing more online smarts and product orientation to the 97-year-old media company. I look forward to seeing what both Keelar and Tom do to reshape and refocus the diverse collection of admirable assets now crammed into HBO Max. Meanwhile, the strip mining of WarnerMedia's other strip 
Other streaming service, DC Universe, continues. Stargirl is moving to the CW for its second season. HBO Max already claimed Doom Patrol and reportedly will get an animated Harley Quinn series as well. That leaves DC Universe with just one original exclusive series, Titans, and a likely ticking clock on its prospects. My grade for HBO Max is D+, for way too many unforced errors and that very late debut in the market. Hulu. The other Disney Entertainment service continued to impress, bolstered by buzzy originals from its FX on Hulu dedicated hub, including Devs and Mrs. America. The FX and FXX programming provides an edgier alternative to the scrub-clean pastels of Disney+, Hulu also has some broader hits than anything on its corporate cousin, even The Mandalorian, according to new data from Parrot Analytics. Both Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Brooklyn Nine-Nine uh, cracked Parrot's top ten most in-demand online shows, along with seven programs from Netflix and Game of Thrones. The downside, viewers have to buy two services with different logins, billing, and the rest. Add in Disney's sports-focused ESPN+, Plus, which has been hamstrung by the pandemic, and it's three logins for no obvious consumer benefit. I note that Disney was advertising the bundle of ESPN+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, and Hulu just last night on the uh, ESPN uh, programming around the opening night for Major League Baseball. I expect we'll see a whole lot more of that kind of push in the months to come. For now, the grade for Hulu is a B-plus for steady, if uninspiring, work. Quibi. It's easy to say I told you so, but Quibi had a mangled launch, and not just because of the pandemic, despite founder Jeffrey Katzenberg's blame game. The company made a series of bad decisions that looked a lot like what happens when the olds make a new media service designed to appeal to the youngs, the Gen Z and millennials. It didn't go well. A business model expecting people to watch on mobile a few minutes at a time throughout the day didn't work when those people were suddenly homebound with time to kill and big screens to watch. Unforced error number one, you couldn't throw a Quibi show onto those big screens. Unforced error number two, the company blocked screenshots so no one who actually watched and liked a Quibi show could share it on social media easily. The company's trying to fix some of that, but prospects are grim. Mobile analytics service Sensor Tower issued a report suggesting the company's subscriber numbers fell off a cliff to just 72,000 users after the initial three-month trial period, free trial, ended for most users. Even with $1.75 billion raised, that money will go fast without paying subscribers or advertisers. I do give them extra credit, however. Jason Reitman's fan video-style remake of The Princess Bride, featuring brief appearances by everyone from Jack Black and John Hamm to Mackenzie Davis, it's an unlikely hit that moved variety critic Owen Gliberman to wonder whether the, quote, sort of addictive, unquote, series was a shaggy public access novelty or the savior of Quibi. In the streaming future, which without rapid iteration won't include Quibi, you can be both. My grade for Quibi is F plus because Princess Bride, one of the great films of all time. Peacock. The Comcast entry into the streaming wars finally took flight in early July at whatever altitude after roosting quietly for free on the company's broadband and flex services the past three months. You can't grade what you can't see, so finally, as the teacher always demands, NBC Universal will have to show its work. 
Like HBO Max, the roster of new originals will be sparse, just nine shows, including an adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You can see at least the opening episode for free. Interestingly, um, they've made a big emphasis on the free component of Peacock, um, but they have three tiers, which is possibly confusing for folks. As it is, they won't have the hoped-for boost of hundreds of hours of Olympics coverage that they thought was going to be hitting about now. Uh, they will have about 7,500 hours of classic films, Jurassic Park, Shrek, and TV shows, Parks and Recreation, available even in the free tier. Now, I say that, but the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies will be leaving soon, just as on HBO Max, the Harry Potter movies are leaving soon. This is part of the confusion ahead for subscribers who think they're getting something because of some you know, prominent programming, but it's already cycling out because of the vagaries of licensing that still remain in place between the big media companies. So Harry Potter may end up going on to Peacock, Jurassic World may end up going on to HBO Max. <laughs> it's going to be quite something for folks to keep up. If you're subscribing for a specific show, you're not necessarily going to be happy for long. Just know that you'll have access to see shows somewhere some for some period of time. If you care about them, watch them when they become available and go from there. As it is, paying customers will get twice as much of a library as the folks on the free tier, which is the one that NBC has been emphasizing. They'll have live news, including um, the Today Show on a 24-7 channel. They'll have late night shows, and they'll have sports like 100 English Premier League soccer matches, and we'll see other stuff as the pro sports leagues come back online for however long they do. I have to, com- I have to admit I'm a bit skeptical about uh, the sustainability of the pro sports debuts without fans, but I also watched Major League Baseball's opening night last night, and was grateful to see it. Um, The sports that uh, Peacock will have, I think, will be a differentiator from most of their competitors, and that's a good thing. I'll also give them extra credit for a last-minute deal with ViacomCBS, which added a significant cache of ViacomCBS films, like the Godfather trilogy from Paramount and American Beauty, and TV shows like Ray Donovan and The Affair. Those will roll out over the next three years. Again, this is going to be confusing to people, particularly when Viacom CBS eventually rolls out, and we'll get to that in a minute, its own beefed-up CBS All Access. Um, and it did this three-month sort of soft launch that Peacock used um, for the service, I think was helpful for them to tweak and reshape it as they were going. If you're going to be late, at least use the time to look better, and they did I'm going to have to give them a grade of incomplete, though, still. Now, CBS All Access. Viacom CBS executives keep promising they're going to release details on plans to make CBS All Access more than a niche service for Star Trek shows and The Good Fight. They've beefed up, you know, we're calling it Viacom CBS All Access. Almost certainly we'll have lots of shows from Paramount and all the Viacom cable networks but we don't have clarity yet about how it will handle licensing, just as we saw with that deal with Peacock, while keeping the gems of its library to itself, or at least uh, largely available to its beefed-up new service. Equally confusing to me, at least, is where Pluto, their free ad-supported service, which they bought in 2018, fits in. 
Pluto just announced it has more than 100,000 hours of content, double levels of just six months ago. That includes 40 shows from CBS and Comedy Central, such as Survivor, America's Next Top Model, South Park, and Beverly Hills 90210. Again, the clock is ticking on Viacom CBS to show how this all fits together. In the meantime, you might as well watch another Star Trek episode. And the grade for CBS All Access will be a D plus for missing way too many classes. This should have been done months ago. And that is my report card for the big streaming services for this quarter. I'd love to hear from you about what you think. There's been so much going on, and it's difficult to keep up. This is just a snapshot as much as a report card, but at least it gives us a chance to kind of pull together some of the trends and events and the news in a bigger way and uh, think about how these services are uh, fighting against each other, trying to uh, deal with customer churn and relationships and competition at a really complicated and interesting time. Um, anyway, I'll be back in just a second. Hold on. Wanted to make sure you all also uh, get the chance to listen to a conversation. Actually, I've been doing a lot of uh, moderating and panel joining in, uh, in the last few weeks. It's been kind of crazy. I was uh, on the panel at uh, the sort of closing overview state of influencer marketing panel for the Influencer Marketing Conference and Expo, their virtual version a couple weeks ago. We had a great conversation that I recommend you dig up. I'll uh, try to put this link and others into the into the uh, show notes. Uh, I more recently last week I had a conversation or earlier this week I had a conversation with Dane Smith of the Third Floor, which is a visualization technology company that works with shows like The Mandalorian and Avatar sequels and um, that spinoff of Lord of the Rings, among much much else, in helping directors and other creators in the film and TV business be very uh, structured and show what they want their their project to look like so they can get everybody on the same uh, boat. It's transforming the way film and TV production is done. Um, it's also helping clear up some of the black box challenges of creating a film in green screen and then dropping it into uh, a bunch of post-production guys and hoping to God it comes out okay. Um, so Dane and I had a fantastic conversation about the uh, transformation of the shifting uh, process of making film and TV that I strongly recommend. It's on Let's Do Lunch from earlier this week. And then we have San Diego Comic-Con at home. I um, pre-recorded, moderated a panel with six smart people, including Ted Shilowitz, the uh, futurist at Paramount Pictures, and um, Isabel Riva, who runs the labs over at Unity, one of the big uh, uh, game engines that's being used increasingly for film and TV production also, uh, and certainly for mobile game creation and much else uh, in the AR and VR worlds, and she's on the cutting edge of that. I mean, we had some other really smart people about how it's being used in education and art, but it's all about the future of immersive entertainment, which is... Uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, 
mixed reality, all those R's, as we like to say. Uh, so they've just taken to calling it immersive entertainment. But that future is very interesting and very bright and getting closer and closer as we move through what's happening here and beyond. So that is uh, actually Comic Book Review just said it was one of the uh, one of the best under-the-radar panels of Comic-Con. So that's, that's some endorsement. It'll be available on Sunday. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. I uh, hope you dig these out. If you uh, enjoy smart conversations with smart people, I certainly love um, being part of those things, um, however much I can contribute. And, uh, and I love bringing this sort of stuff to you as well. And that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found some things of interest. If you have any thoughts on the, how the streaming services did, uh, you can leave a message, an audio message for me on uh, the service that uh, distributes my uh, and syndicates my show across 10 different platforms. Um, Anchor.fm, now a part of the Spotify family, um, has this audio message capability. You can also reach me, if you'd like, on Twitter, at David Bloom, or on LinkedIn, at David L. Bloom, and uh, connect with me there. I love to hear from people who listen to the show, want to be part of the show, have some thoughts about some of the things I'm talking about. So please, please, please reach out. If you like the show, please rate, review, share, subscribe. All those things help the magic algorithm machine figure out that I'm, gee, a really smart guy occasionally and says, and, and I say some entertaining things once in a while. Uh, that's at least my dream, however seldom I may achieve it. And I hope you are doing well. Uh, in the meantime, please take care of yourselves. Stay safe and sane. Both are useful in this time. And uh, I'll be back soon. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.